Today is November 12, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today we have us with us Dr. Robert Stackman. He's Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and at the Center for Complex Systems and Brain Sciences at Florida Atlantic University. Bob's work is focused on brain mechanisms of episodic learning and spatial navigation, and for those in the know, that combination always means the hippocampus. So lately, he's been studying the role of the hippocampus and perirhinal cortex in memories about objects. Hi, Bob. Hi. Around the room, UTSA faculty, Brian Derrick. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. Isabel. Muziel. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, Bob, how about getting us started with a little background about what is the difference between just remembering something and knowing what it is, and how do we think the brain does that? Sure, thanks. Um, so the thinking is that um, recognition memory, as it's called, is uh, involves a circuit through the medial temporal lobe that involves the perirhinal cortex, which receives input from dedicated sensory cortices and association cortices, and uh, together with the parahippocampal cortex, which is thought to bring spatial and contextual information into the entorhinal cortex. And so these two streams are relatively segregated and, and enter distinct subpopulations of cells in the entorhinal cortex called medial entorhinal, uh, which carries the spatial and contextual information, and uh, lateral entorhinal, which carries this more item and uh, sensory-driven uh, information. And those two streams converge in the hippocampus. But um, the distinction that's often made in the human literature is about this remember-know that you alluded to. And that's this feeling that, um, or this experience that we probably all had. I just came back from neuroscience a couple weeks ago. And um, I, this always happens to me when I'm at the meeting. I'll see someone, I may have met them last year or two years ago or some at some scientific meeting, and I see the person and I can't quite get their name or I can't remember how I know them. So. Um, uh, this is the, the know, you know you know this person, but you can't quite recollect the full memory of how you, uh, how you experienced them previously. And perhaps by looking at Brian Derrick a few times and talking about uh, different study sections and so forth, then I'll remember, oh, this is Brian Derrick. That's right, I remember meeting him before. Um, so it's, there's a distinction in the human literature that the perirhinal cortex uh, provides us with that sense of familiarity and then uh, if we've encoded the information sufficiently, the hippocampus will provide us that full recollection of the, of the episodic uh, memory that encapsulates when you particularly met that person. So we've been interested in, in trying to study uh, this uh, phenomenon in rodents, and um, when I ask rodents if they know that other rodent, they never respond. So we have to develop other kinds of paradigms to kind of get at this sort of distinction. But um, uh, the data in, uh, from my lab suggests that uh, these two structures, the parietal cortex and the hippocampus proper, participate in, in distinct ways, but um, in complementary ways or in concert with one another. So is there, is there any evidence that the, the recognition, uh, does it take less information? So when you do recognize somebody, you get a whole ton of associations. Uh, 
But do you, are you using those associations to to recognize familiarity, or is there kind of fewer of them? It's a distinction of kind of what you actually yeah. retrieve versus like what you use for the the computation. That's right. So I, I think that so one one way to answer that would be if you have enough of those associations. Uh, then they might be able to support the full, the deeper, stronger memory that you would allow you to recollect the full in, uh, bit of information. If you only have a few of those associations made, perhaps maybe that is what supports this familiarity sense. Um, somebody that you might have met fleetingly or something, uh, someplace that you were just briefly, maybe you didn't have sufficient time to, uh, to include. So it's not really dichotomous. I mean, normally people say, well, you recognize or you don't, and that's one thing. And then you know who it is, in which case that means you really know who it is and you remember everything about them. And that, and that those two things are really different. But it sounds like you're saying, well, you could, you could say, yes, this is somebody I've seen before and I remember a little bit about them, or more, or more, or more. It sort of removes that binary nature of the yeah. distinction. It? I think it really depends. I mean, this is sort of at the heart of the... Um, the, there's a bit of a controversy in the human hippocampal literature. Um, certain camps believe that it's um, both structures participate um, in, uh, in in this sort of behavior. And what we what we experience is that general sense of familiarity. Some people would argue that that's just um, perhaps information that's uh, that it's either uh, you're not able to recall all the information, retrieve it, and so that uh, is involving paravinal and hippocampus together. Other people would suggest that they're distinct uh, and that the parental cortex supports that general sense of familiarity that, that you know, we've been kicking around, or, uh, or the hippocampus participates in that full-on recollection. So there's certain labs that will make this distinction or this dichotomy, and other labs that have suggested that probably the hippocampus participates in both. This brings up another issue, which is that there is kind of a debate about what the hippocampus is involved with and uh, whether the hippocampus only represents a space or is also integrating information within that context, context that is created in the brain and codes for other things such as objects or events that happened. And the field is divided because there is so much evidence that the cells in this region just form spatial representations. Your data shows that they do something else. Where do you think the field? Will, do you think the field will converge? Do you think? What do you think about the dichotomy and and how is your position related mm -hmm. to that? Uh, well, I can tell you that um, we've been looking for what I what I thought we would find would be object and context, or object and location conjunctive representation. So we, what we do, and what I explained earlier was um, this very simple object task where the animal goes into a familiar environment and encounters two novel objects in what we call a sample session and explores those objects, presumably encodes some memory of those particular objects, and then after some period of time goes back into that same familiar environment and now encounters a new object in that environment. And by the animal's behavior, they'll spend more time with novel objects than familiar objects provided they're in a familiar environment. And uh, and so what this task simply is, is, is learning about objects in context. And so I had assumed when we started to record in the hippocampus, um, after we determined that the hippocampus was important for this, this kind of behavior, I thought we would find uh, cells that uh, were 
firing only when objects were in a particular location. A particular object in a particular place. Yeah, and, and we, we just haven't found them. And, and so there's an, uh, a number of interpretations of that. We, maybe we weren't looking in the right place in the hippocampus, or maybe this doesn't happen in the hippocampus. So there's ideas about uh, the um, two, well, three, if you will, streams of information that come through the hippocampus. And one idea is that uh, the spatial and non-spatial information from the medial and, and lateral and neuronal cortex, respectively, come uh, together and converge in the dentate gyrus and then into CA3 and then CA1 on, a, on one particular path called the trisynaptic pathway. And the other argument is that uh, there's also direct, well, it's not an argument, there's, there's evidence that uh, anatomically the medial and lateral anatomical cortex are connected directly to uh, um, the CA3 and the CA1. And so some have argued that there's um, independent, what this means is that there's also parallel, separate pathway that carries parallel spatial and non-spatial information to these, these different regions. And maybe that uh, is, um, is received in CA1 on dedicated subsets of neurons in CA1. So pyramidal neurons in CA1 might be a, a, a spatial responsive cell, other cells might be a, an item or object responsive cell in, in our task. And what that would, the fact that we don't see that conjunction means that maybe that conjunction doesn't, isn't supported until the information gets out of the hippocampus. And, and maybe the place to look would be the subiculum. I will be a little bit of the devil's advocate here mm -hmm. because one of the arguments, and not that I'm going to present the argument not so much because I believe in it, but for people that think that the hippocampus only is cold in space, say is that on any given trial, even if you move an object and the cell is responding to that object and then you place the object in a different location and the cell responds again, so you say the cell is responding to the object independent of the space. But on any given trial, the object, the object is in a particular spatial location. So, in a way, it's, we live in a three-dimensional space, so it's very, very hard to say the cell is responding to an other or an object independent of the space. So maybe, um, I know, I know that you were thinking about these experiments, I don't know if you have gotten something, but one way maybe to answer that question would be to record what two objects are moving in a space and see where you see some effect. And I am wondering, I know that you were thinking at some point to do that type of experiment, and I don't know if you have any preliminary data yeah. that you want to share yeah. with us. Yeah. That would be great, because hippocampus, uh, neurophysiologists are famous for thinking of really clever things like rats riding on trains and stuff like that, mm -hmm. toy trains, to solve these problems. So, do you, so what I am saying is that he, and actually it's not my idea, he had the idea, um, at some point he mentioned it to me, and I don't know if I am wording this correctly, but just to put two objects that are moving constantly in a space, then you can replace one of the objects, but they are both in motion, so at any given time, they are not in, I mean, they are constantly moving. So this would be the so Lego robots or something. Exactly. Yeah. So if a cell responds to one of them, it will be in a location that is constantly that is not constant right. across time. Right. So I wonder whether you have done that experiment, what your predictions would be. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, you, you set this up exactly right. So um, what we've been doing is recording play cells, and first is to determine that they're stable, and then in inserting these hex bugs. I don't know if 
if you know what these no, are. Okay. These no. little, little hex bugs. There, uh, there are a variety of them that are out there on the market. They're little battery-operated robotic toys, and you can release them in a chamber, and they'll just move around the floor. Um, we had to play around with a couple of them because some of them are large and some of them are really loud. <laughs> they don't have a particular pattern? Um, they don't. Uh, so they're pretty chaotic and or ran, more or less random in the way that they uh, they move around. And so um, what we found, and, and it's a bit preliminary, although we have some, the, the data are very consistent. Um, if you record a, a place on, you've defined it as stable without the, in the absence of these objects. When the animal encounters these objects moving around, now the place cells become very unstable and they tend to move around. That's quite um, interesting. Yeah, and so maybe it relates to what you're saying if the animal perhaps is using these objects um, to mark places, or, or what we're looking at is um, a consequence of the animal's divided attention. You know, it, it's always amazed me why why does the animal uh, map space when there's no um, behavioral significance, I would think, for the animal to keep track of where it is in these arenas. And you know what these arenas are. They're pretty small. Um, the experimenter reaches in, puts them in there, and then comes back 15 minutes later, takes them out. The animal doesn't have to really do anything. Um, um, but what it, it's probably an advantage to the animal to always keep track of where it is in an environment, especially these rodents, you know. Um, it might be evolutionarily significant for them to keep track. So, so certainly uh, the animal is keeping track of its location, and that's the reflection that you see with um, place cells. Uh, it may be that the place cells become unstable because the animal is dividing its attention between keeping track of its position in space as well as other uh, this other feature, this uh, moving object. So this another, is sorry. Another way to look at this, though, is is looking at how animals respond to novelty in general, <clears throat> and that's what, where, and when, uh, or uh, uh, usually what and where. And if you put in a new object, of course, it's a novel object, and the animal will explore it more. But also, you can take a familiar object, move it from its usual location, and the animal will explore that more. So it'd be really interesting to take a look at the object cells that you've reported, and see, and see if while place cells might remap when the object moves, these object self might still respond to that object in the same way. That would be something mm -hmm. interesting to look at. Mm -hmm. I'd also be curious as if, to, if they had a, get an experiment where the, uh, the hex bugs were like constrained by some small barrier or something, and the mouse didn't have to worry about getting run over. Because right? he might be using his place cells to anticipate where it's going to go and try to get out the hell out of the way. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe computing space and trajectories about and predicting lots of stuff that's happening all at once, and that may be making things less stable in terms of just place. You've got to like figure out where it's going to go. So right? I've got the place the Xbox is going to be, and not the place it is. Yeah, I've got a better idea. There's this video that was very popular, and it's a cat in a shark suit on a Roomba, and so it's a lot like your train, little car and train idea. In this case, rather than moving the objects, if you could move the animals to the objects, that would be sort of interesting. You take out the whole spatial, vestibular, end place. Yeah. Don't you need right. to do a non-shark suit control? I suppose that would be a <laughs> Remind me about what happened to place cells when the animal was being moved passively around. They fire. They fire. So they, they, as long as they can see the cues that, that they associate with a place, the place cells will fire, and I remember a video of Bruce McNaughton actually holding a rat wrapped up in a in a, uh, uh, a towel, 
and he would sort of move it around the environment. It was almost like a little rat Geiger counter, because it would only fire in the particular orientation of the place cell had been fired at previously. In fact, in the brain, there are not only place cells, but there are also other cells, the interneurons in the brain, called the speed of the animal, and now there is new experiments done by the Moser lab in which actually they move the rat on a little uh, cart and the speed cells track the speed of the cart even when the animal is not moving by itself. <laughs> so they, this is a manipulation because they can control the speed precisely by moving the cart slowly or faster and the cells adjust the speed um, accordingly. So definitely the brain can code even when the animal is it's not moving yeah. by itself. It almost doesn't tell its speed by how fast it's walking. It can do it by, by visual flow. Right. That's that's the, exactly the prediction that, that they are making. Which is surprising. Yeah, that's great. So the, can I, um, before we get off of this issue about place cells and objects, let me just ask a question as an outsider. Because um, I'm always told, the hippocampus is how we remember events from our childhood and the things that we've learned in school and all of that stuff. All that is episodic declarative memory. But all the you know, physiology on hippocampus seems to not provide an answer for how that could happen. It's all about you know where we've been, but not about what happened there or any of the mm. facts associated with it. So for example, if I'm teaching a course, a neurobiology course, I tell the students, well, the hippocampus is where you remember your events that happened in your life. And how do we know that? Well, because the neurons have place field. So, <laughs> can we, a hard one to explain. Is yeah. all that? Is, mm. or is, or is that a, just a problem for the future to understand? Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot okay. uh, at this, um, and this is actually, and, and Isabel might, might feel differently, so it'll be interesting, but um, there was a whole session this year at the Society for Neuroscience trying to uh, bridge this notion of, is the hippocampus for the rodent really important for space, as well as in humans, or is it also participating in, in memory, and how do we integrate those those views? Um, and because there, there are some features of, of the hippocampus that, um, that we have to kind of remember, which is this notion that the hippocampus might play some um, temporal um, or some, some temp time-limited role in memory. So if I train the animal in a particular task, the hippocampus might be important for encoding and consolidating that memory, but then over time, that information might become independent of the hippocampus, maybe. Right? And so one of the, one of the notions is uh, with fear conditioning, for example, if I bring the animal to a novel environment and let the animal explore that environment, and then the next day bring the animal back to that environment and, and present uh, foot shock, which the animals don't like, um, that will allow the animal, what the animal will do is form an association between the environment and foot shock. And so in, in, on subsequent visits to this environment again, the animal will freeze, expressing that, that context fear memory. Um, um, there's been lesion studies and inactivation studies that suggest that the hippocampus um, uh, holds on to that memory, if you will, for a period of time. But then for rats, after about 28 days or so, they, they, you could lesion the hippocampus. So the, these studies are done, for example, you train the animal, and then you wait some period of time, and then you lesion the hippocampus. And after the animal recovers from that surgery, put the animal back into the context again and ask, is the animal afraid? And if you space the timing between 
if you delay the lesion long enough, you get to the point where the animal can still express the freezing response in the context with now without the hippocampus. And this has led to the, and there's similar suggestions in, in primates and humans that the hippocampus might uh, might not be necessary for uh, for our ability to retrieve remote, what's called remote memories. Uh, and so the hippocampus might participate in a time-limited way for certain memories. The, the, the issue, I think, for spatial memories seems that the hippocampus for the rodent probably always participates in this spatial behavior. Um, you know, for example, you know, um, the water maze task, um, that's the gold standard for rodent hippocampal people. Um, in, the, in this task, the animal learns a particular location in the pool of water based on its uh, uh, association with cues around the pool. And um, if you lesion the hippocampus, the animal is very, has, uh, is very impaired in learning this task. And it takes much, much more training for the animal to, to actually learn the task. If you train the animal uh, on this task and then after training make an inactivation of the hippocampus, uh, the animal will be impaired in, in, uh, in finding that platform. So the, the suggestion for spatial memory is that perhaps the, the, the hippocampal system is specialized sufficiently that uh, it's, it's, allow, it's, it's required for the animal to maintain its position in space or maintain its orientation within space. So space might be something special still for the hippocampus. Um, what I'll, I guess my argument for, um, for this and the way to sort of turn it around is to say that for the traditional lesion experiments, if there is this systems consolidation such that that remote memory from your childhood, you can retrieve it if, even if you had some compromised hippocampal function, um, like after a stroke or, or something like that, um, I don't. I don't know that the. You know what the interpretation is. Is these remote memories are spared in hippocampal amnesics or human amnesics with hippocampal damage? Um, the interpretation is always that. Well, that means that the hippocampus isn't involved in retrieving old memories, but the hippocampus is damaged. And so my interpretation is we. You know you don't have a fair. You can't make a fair assessment because the hippocampus just isn't isn't working properly. Uh, and I think that uh, some some high field uh, functional imaging will help to understand whether when uh, a human is, re is retrieving some remote memory, perhaps the hippocampus is engaged. And I think that the jury's out. Actually, there, are, there is a really interesting debate now in the field and the proponents of, there are two major proponents of these theories. Larry Squire says that the memories has, are transferred to cortex. Lynn Nadal says, the hippocampus is always involved, and he claims with imaging studies that, in fact, the memories that people that have lesions in the hippocampus, they can remember events from childhood, but they are not as precise as the memories from people that have an intact hippocampus. Now, this is a very tricky question because, obviously, you cannot do it within subject comparison, and therefore, some people may have better memories than others, so it's very hard to have a conclusive answer. But a few years ago, there was a really interesting experiment by the Deseroth lab that using optogenetics, and what they did was to inactivate the hippocampus. They trained the animal doing a fear conditioning experiment, and then they waited 30 days to retest the animals in the same context, and they inhibited the hippocampus either for a long period of time or very, very briefly. When they inhibited the hippocampus 
for a long period of time, the rats were able to retrieve the fear memory. But when they inhibited the hippocampus just briefly, the rats didn't show fear to the context. So the conclusion was that we have parallel, pa parallel brain structures that allow us to perform even when the hippocampus is not working. So if you have an inhibition of the hippocampus that is prolonged, that is equivalent to having a lesion of the hippocampus. So the brain has enough time to engage other structures that may contain parts of that memory in order to produce a proper retrieval. But if you inhibit the hippocampus only briefly, then the, the parallel systems that may sustain part of the memory cannot be engaged rapidly enough in order to retrieve that memory. So maybe both camps have the right answer, <laughs> and we just have to keep doing experiments to answer this question. But going back to Charlie's question, I think that it was more of a qualitative question about the kind of memory that's being stored. And that is, is the how does the phenomenon of spatial memory in place cells translate to episodic memory of events in our lifetime? And 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 that's always just been a, something that has no answer for me, and it's a difficult one to reconcile. For me, I, I look at it two potential ways, and that is, is that it is sort of species-specific. I like to think of uh, the way I look at the brain is, is I'm not so much interested in, in, in the structure because it's involved with fear or a structure that it's involved with memory, but the kind of computations that structure does. What the hippocampus is good at doing is associating different inputs into one sort of output and, and to do pattern completion. So really, it may be a species different because you know rats maybe don't have vivid episodic events in their life. They don't have a lot of episodic event autobiographical information. Their life is spatial and olfactory, and what you put into the hippocampus is what gets associated. With us, it's become more complex, and our, our events in our lifetime are what get, you know, are processed by our brain and what eventually get into the, the, the ventral stream and to the hippocampus. So it might be just qualitative. <clears throat> so that, if that's true, that gets to the question, well, what are the computations that the hippocampus performs? And it is, what's happening is that the cortical areas that are active at any instantaneous point in time get to the hippocampus pretty much at the same time it can be associated. So wh whether they're events or facts, or whether they're uh, spatial landmarks or cues, or any of those things, it doesn't matter, because the hippocampus operates on that information in the same way. What I also think is interesting, though, is when we think about memory uh, and, and space, I always think of memory space in terms of myself, and, and the memories that I have are always hierarchical and that I could have a very bare-bones sort of outline, and I can expand each of those to something larger. There's a mnemonic device called the method of loci that I use all the time, and I use the walk from the parking lot to my laboratory, and I imagine it in my mind, and I imagine objects in that sequence going to my lab when I go to the supermarket. I have an iPhone that I could use, but you know, why bother? <laughs> it requires too much button pushing, and I usually forget my iPhone somewhere. But it's you a very... Your shopping list, there's a sequence of items between mm -hmm. the car and the lab? Uh-huh, and I usually do them in terms of the... I usually start at the pharmacy and end up in the vegetable section, too, so the vegetables always end up by my lab. And that's where I get confused at the end, because I'll end up getting eggplant when I really wanted plums or something. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's subject to saturation, I'm afraid. But you see, you you are still associating space. all these lists with the space. Uh -huh. so I do not see the dichotomy. Because yes, exactly. when you recall any episodic memory, 
that those events will be embedded in a particular context. You remember the parking lot and your endpoint, and then you remember the sequence of events that are embedded within that context. And even for semantic memories, because, you know, declarative memories which require the hippocampus are divided into episodic, which are events that happen in particular contexts at specific times, and semantic, semantic memories that are the facts and events that we recall. But even though people say semantic memories don't require the context so much, still when you know, when you think about the historical event, you think about that event within a particular context. Um, I don't know, um, uh, the death of JFK, people can picture in their minds a particular context in which they heard about the news and the images on the TV when that event happened. So because we live in a space, the context is always there. And I don't see, I know this is a, a, a troublesome for some people, but I don't see the dichotomy and I think that this is why the representation of context is so prevalent for a structure that is involved in encoding these memories. So are you saying memories. all memory is spatial memory? And there is no, not always, because there are memories that don't require the hippocampus, uh, procedural memories, for example, the habits that you learn. You're saying all declarative memory, memory is spatial. In some way, yes. Because well, one way to think about it, and some, I admit to having entertained this idea, which I'm sure is very unpopular, that actually declarative memory isn't all in the hippocampus, but once you've removed the spatial component of it, you can't recall any of the rest of it. And so um, the, the thing I heard my parents say at the day at the beach is in one part of my brain, and the feeling I had is in another one, and then the fact that it was in the beach, at the beach, is in the hippocampus. And when you remove the beach, the rest of it falls apart. And so that would be an unpopular view, I guess, because it would downgrade the hippocampus in importance. I like it. <laughs> it's a very interesting. It's quite possible. So we, we, some of the things is that what, it seems like one of the problematic words is context and versus space. Mm -hmm. So. It's hard to think about the context of an event without thinking about the space because you think about some visual image and then it's all your visual imagery is spatial. And so it's, it, I, I don't know if you can get a, a, a commonly remembered kind of old memory that doesn't have space in it that really is evocative. It has more of that. But it's not just space. Not, so, so what is context? Like, is, is all context space? Maybe it's all context and not space. And what, where, and And then most of ours important context is space and that's what brings things together can you have a, a a memory that you pull together without having a spatial context to pull it together I, I don't know what you think well, try to try to imagine the neuroscience meetings that you've gone to in New Orleans and, and can you separate events that you know happened while you were in New Orleans to particular years of the meeting and that's where when comes in and it's very important what where and when for episodic memories because if it's just what and where I mean for me that's all I'm left with because I remember I, re I remember, uh, 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 <laughs> I can't repeat that, uh, but, I was, but I was in graduate school and it was really embarrassing. And then at some point I thought it had happened a year earlier because I had gotten the times mixed up. Oh, that wasn't in New Orleans last year, that was like 10 years ago. But so, so it's almost like all of these things, These it's, it's sort of like a triangulation. What, where, and when together are needed to, to make a particular context. And so the when might be really important, the temporal aspect. And I guess Frank H. probably talked about how important he thinks the dentage iris is for encoding when. Uh, 
and, and the, the idea of new neurons being sort of the time stamp markers for a new memory. So um, it's really difficult to dissociate context. I think I mean it's, it's really a problem, right? Because all learning, I think, it occurs in some context. Uh, we, and we say context as if we know exactly what we mean, but we don't really know exactly yeah. what we mean. It depends on who, you know, you're right, it depends on who, who's describing it. You know, sometimes it's all the features that, uh, the, you know, that, that were present at the time of this particular event that's going to be remembered. So in New Orleans, you know, uh, at SFM, I met somebody, you know, I don't know. <laughs> no, actually, but I, you know, Sama will take this actually, out. I fell, I fell into a urinal. At a bar, so uh, it was really low, and, and somebody pushed me. I was lost. It was a mess. It was really embarrassing. And this wouldn't have happened in San Diego. No, it wouldn't. Have. <laughs> Never. The house meeting is a rowdy place. It really yeah. was. Well, especially in Bourbon Street. Yeah. Was, you wouldn't have any company in San Diego. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I wasn't alone. Context is a tricky. It's a tricky um, concept to define because it can be this. The, state in which the person is and for example it is well known that drugs create the context that if you try to remember if you are under the influence of a drug and and learn something and then you the effect disappears then you don't remember because the memories are context dependent and so the context in that case is the state induced by drugs so it's a very elusive concept but half of it is internal, so it's remember internal. a happy thing, exactly. right? Well, that's uh, really a statement about your internal state at the moment of some event, which is part of the context. The context can, can be the state of arousal that the person is in. And I always give the example of September 11 because I was interested in the effect of emotional memory. And I always say, we all remember where we were when we heard about September 11. But we can't remember about any other September morning because the state of arousal that that event created makes us remember that situation much better. Yeah, and so. some would argue that we also have rehearsed that. Uh, and I, it's I, true. I, I mean, I you can't separate. Yeah. They would come around. Many times. Say so what you mean by that, because that's. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so this idea is, is that um, that the uh, the hippocampus or or these kinds of uh, emotional emotionally charged memories are. Uh, are rehearsed many times. We've often, you know, every September 11th, we, we get, you know, as a nation, we, you know, I, know, I forget what it's called, but uh, there's a day when we mark it. September 11th is called. Day of Remembrance. Day of Remembrance. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've forgotten. <laughs> I forget what it's called, but, but I, know I, but I, all, and I know exactly where I was when I heard this news. And uh, but I, but I, I wonder about because I've rehearsed that so many times and retrieved that memory. That that's certainly influencing. And memories actually change over time because of that. retrieval. Absolutely, that. absolutely. That was really so, a flash bulb memories, and that's and then, and they are re re, re uh, coded uh, when they're after retrieval. That's right. Uh, before we run out of time, I'd like to bring up just one other topic, if I can. Mm -hmm. And that is, in one of your experiments, you let mice look at photos of objects, and then they act later as though they had actually seen those objects. Now, if, when people do that, it doesn't surprise me at all, because, of course, people have these really abstract, complex representations of things. Maybe they turn the object into words and then they remember the words and the word matches the photo and so on. But when mice do it, it 
it sort of raises the hair on the back of my neck. So how complex, abstract of a capability is that? To, because we imagine mice, when they interact with the object, they run their whiskers around on it, and they sniff mm. it, and they touch it. None of that was possible with the photo. Strictly visual, and then they, that memory transfers great. How great? I mean, perfectly to the actual object. Uh, um, okay, so that, that's a good question. So if we compare the, the strength of that uh, preference for novelty that we see in, with the task where there's they learn initially about 3D objects and then they're tested on 3D objects. Um, the, um, the performance of the animals is strong. If we do it as a 2D to 3D um, um, test, the performance is a little bit weaker than what you would expect of the animal. To, so, you know, again, um, there's something lost. Uh, it's not as strong, but it is, I, I'm right there with you. I didn't believe the, the data when we first when I was first seeing the data, I didn't believe it. And uh, we played around with a lot of the manipulations, uh, viewing the picture. If it's a simple picture, they can do it. Uh, they can transfer that information, presumably, to the, to the 3D object. If the um, object is more complex and looks different depending on the orientation, um, they still can do it. So the example is this gorilla that we have that's a, it's a, we call it an asymmetrical object, Depend, looks different depending on the, the angle that you approach it. Um, and we started out with pictures that had face uh, head on of the monkey, so the, I mean, the mice would explore these two pictures of this, and the next day get the actual monkey and the, and the other object, and they would explore the novel object. What we've done uh, to address some reviewers' issues were uh, turn the uh, monkey and take a picture of the monkey, show the mice a picture of the monkey from the side, and then uh, and we still get the strong preference for exploring the novel object. So uh, I'm I'm very surprised, and and we've done it as well with the with the animal not able to even you know initially we thought well maybe they're whisking over the picture and you know, something about that I don't know helps, but uh, we've been able to show that they can do this uh, same transfer if they do both sessions behind glass, right? So, um, I don't so know. So if you take a picture from the front or from the side, you still that translates. Yeah. That. That's quite interesting because that reminds me about the cells in the medial temporal lobe that humans have that recognize, for example, the face of Jennifer Aniston or, or Darth Vader. And it's always amazing to me that regardless of the visual differences of all the pictures that are shown, the same cell will respond. So even in lower animals, that suggests that there is at some higher cortical level the ability to integrate commonalities between visual inputs to, to create a concept, which is really uh, incredible to me. It's incredible to me that mice can do it. It's incredible to me that humans, that a single cell in a human can do it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I agree. I think that, so that view invariant response, the Jennifer Aniston uh, cell is really a phenomenon, right? But it's a, in a way, what you are seeing is, is not at the level of a single cell, yeah. but you are showing that the animals have the ability to see that invariant um, well, characteristic yeah. of the object. I, I, don't, I don't know if I would not surprised when people do it. Because we know we do that stuff. That's what we do. Right. Does it work the other way? Oh, but I am surprised that a single cell can do it. I mean, I'm not surprised that a human 
No, but they record from a single cell and they show pictures yeah. of Jennifer Aniston. There could be one Which is like a place cell. So exactly. So it would be a face cell, I guess. A face cell. Or a friend cell. Or a, a Jennifer cell. It's a Jennifer cell. Or a Holly Berry cell. Holly Berry. I think the Holly Berry cell fired even to the words Holly Berry, right? The interesting thing yeah. is that the, wow. the Aniston cell didn't fire when Jennifer Aniston was with Brad Pitt. Right. The cell didn't like Brad Pitt. No. no. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were Brad Jen or something. They were some kind of hybrid of the two. Okay, uh, well, I think we're right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you the question just, I mean, this, this probably won't even get in there, but have you done it the other way around where you show them the picture and then show them a three dimensional object? Would that because I just expect them to do much worse at that. Because the three-dimensional object being translated into, oh, you know, no, that's, that one. Must be that's, yes, that's the way we do it. We, we, we thought that would be more difficult if we started with the picture and went to the object. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, we haven't done it the other way where they have the 3D objects and then go. Okay. But, but um, Interesting. One of the things we have done, I'll, I'll try to do this very quickly, is, um, you know, if you, if you think about what I showed you, this gorilla has some purple and has lots of different colors and a lot of features. Um, so what we've done is, is to try to uh, determine whether it's some particular feature of that object itself. And so if we present, um, what we did was we trained, um, we trained the animals to pictures of the, of the monkey during the sample session. Then during the test session, uh, gave the animal uh, the actual monkey, which should be familiar, uh, a novel object, and then, um, um, and then um, a picture of a scrambled monkey. Um, and the animals actually treat the treat them both as novel. So I'm um, suggesting, I mean, if, if it was just some feature of the monkey, then the scrambled monkey should show have the same uh, preference or lack of preference. Yes. And, yet, and yet they treat it as novel. So, I mean, it may get at this issue a little bit more. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, Robert Stackman, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.